world of e-commerce can be tricky, and that's why you need the experts to help take you to the next level. This is Delivering E-Commerce, and this is Chris Parsons. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Delivering E-Commerce. I'm your host, Chris Parsons, and I'm here with a very special guest, one of my friends in the industry for a long time now, Mr. Michael LeBlanc. How you doing, sir? Fantastic. Chris, thanks for having me on board. Uh, Congratulations on launching a podcast. Uh, it's fantastic. Uh, I mean, you've been a mentor without knowing that you're a mentor to me. So I've watched <laughs> you in the industry a long time. We've connected at so many events and, yeah. you know, last traveled internationally, right? We went to Ireland together. Yeah. And I learned so much from you. And, you know, when I, what I appreciate about you the most is watching how other people respond to you and how you interact and give time to so many different mm. people. And when I, when I talk to younger people in the industry, I refer to you so often as just a true gentleman and someone to to model after because networking, some people don't believe in it. But when I watch mm-hmm. how you network and how you interact and give time to, it doesn't matter. I mean, I think the first time you and I met, I was a coordinator level um, working for Walmart and you still spent the time with me yeah. to have conversation about the industry. And, and I try to do the same thing and model after that. And it, I don't care what your title is, what your level is. I will make time for for people, and and that I know really comes from from observing you in the marketplace for so many years. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's it's a real joy. I get to meet such interesting people. I mean, if you think about it selfishly, I would you and I would have not met perhaps if I wouldn't have done that. So, you know, it's it's both a joy and and uh, you know I've always been a big believer in giving back. You know, the old and the you know if you get to the top. Or, or like me, get the middle management, send the, send the elevator back down um, kind of thing. But uh, no, it's great. And you know what I learned? If I didn't understand the full value of that, my time at Retail Council Canada continued to teach me that, that that's associations and bringing people together, like-minded people, even competitors, right? Compete at the mm-hmm. cash register. But you know, talking to people in your industry, it just makes everyone better. And, and we really wanted to... I, I'm glad you brought it up because it's really... A question I would offer often answer sometimes some younger uh, younger executives about listen why would I go to a conference why would I go to these things I can watch them on YouTube there's so much content great podcasts right. yes yes to all that but you know there's no replacement um, for meeting people I think we've experienced that over the past eighteen months of not meeting people it's just yeah. not the same right it's just you can't you know hang out by the coffee machine and tell a few lies <laughs> about right. about business, but just talk about how is it going for you? Everything good? Oh yeah, that, we, that's hard for us too. You know those kind of things are just invaluable for personal development, industry cohesion, uh, all those great things. Yeah, and the 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 conversations that you have with other people in your network, and you take them back and you give them to. I manage a team of almost thirty now, um, and wow, they're learning from me because it's. It's coaching by walking around. They don't get the opportunities that I may have to go out and speak to folks like you. And and anytime I can take a nugget from from a leader in the industry and share it with my group, it just makes my team overall stronger. So I think it's yeah. it's so critical that we we all support each other in this industry. I mean, in any industry, but specifically in the e-commerce and retail industry, uh, there's yeah. there's nothing but positive that will come from it. So thank you, sir. Let's get into talking about your journey. Um, in retail, you are a pioneer, a founder of e-commerce in in this country, and I really want to dive into your story—not just the e-commerce part, but um, the whole. Uh, you're so young, what ten years? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, listen, listen. It, it, you know the short, long story. I've been in retail 25, 30 years. Didn't like many. Didn't start out to be in retail 
uh, did a couple of university degrees, Carlton, McGill, and then did an MBA at, at U of T, uh, did some product management coming out of there, and then found my way into, into working with vendors, what I'd now call vendors, Black & Decker. And then a funny thing happened. I bought a book on a site, maybe you've heard of it, called Amazon. Um, and this book arrived and I, I said to myself, this could change everything. And this, we're talking 96 here. And, and, and I had a fellow MBA, a guy named Steve Reddick, and he was already well ahead of me in terms of, we went to this at York course at York about programming. And we were still how to figure out this worldwide web. Of course, we were looking up weather charts and things. It was before browsers were even created. But it became clear to me that it was one of those intersection points in your career or in society or in business where there's an inflection point where you can learn a little bit about something and be way ahead in your career. Like you could actually leapfrog. Because yeah. at the time, I was having a great time, Black & Decker running uh, the, the Canadian market. And you know the future was kind of bright. I could go here. I could go to the states. I could continue to do it, and and you know it was challenging, fun work. But it, but the opportunity to learn a little bit and be a forward thinker. So here's what happened. I was in a boardroom at Black and Decker. This is ninety four, ninety five, and they were launching a, this new thing called an internet site. And they said, well, it's called BD Home. And uh, you know, I kind of at the back of the room put my hand up. I go, why don't we? Why is it called BD Home? Why don't you call it blackaddecker.com? Right. And and everybody turned around and went, okay, you're in charge. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it was like when you read Wired magazine, you knew more than everybody else. And that kind of cemented the idea that even though I was a young executive, I could interact and learn with very senior executives because they're all wanting to learn something new, right? All wanting to learn something different. So uh, out of Black & Decker full-time gig, an opportunity for Levi Strauss came up. It was a contract, so it was a bit of a risk, but they were launching e-commerce and they were launching it in Canada globally because their idea was, particularly at the time, 98, 97, 98, if it, if it screws up, it's Canada. We can fix it. It's not going to sink the ship, right? Yeah. Um, it's a sandbox. Canada is always a sandbox. Great sandbox. We love them for it. And at the time, listen, man, at the time, we weren't sure e-commerce was going to win. We weren't sure retailers were going to win or vendors were going to win, right? If you think back, like the great disintermediation, right? Why do you even need retailers if you have e-commerce was the kind of one of the lines yeah. of thinking. Um, and so I went to Levi's and, and, and sold the first pair of jeans in the world online uh, from Levi Strauss. And you can imagine the heavy lift early days. We had nobody to prime the pump. In fact, I phoned my friend up, Steve, and I said, we launched e-commerce three days ago. We have not one sale. We worked on it for seven months. Could you just buy a pair of <laughs> jeans from me? <laughs> yeah. And he did. And, you know, we rang the bell. We got a sale. It was fantastic. And then I went to the storeroom to get the product. And it was gone. And what happened to all my e-commerce product? Well, we gave it to Sears because, you know, <laughs> we were a little short on an order. So I literally went in the car, went to Sears, bought a pair of Levi's, from Sears and sold them to my friend. That's how e-commerce began at the global powerhouse of, of Levi Strauss. And, and, you know, listen, I was hooked after that. Um, and then it was few and far between, like so few people in the industry. Hudson's Bay came looking. Uh, they had just got a new CEO and that started the journey of launching HBC.com in 2000. Um, so that was a, a mad, you know, it was a fun rush. Um, and then, you know, e-commerce hit the, hit the skids. It was tough after 2000, like the, with the recession, uh, there wasn't much demand. It was hard to prime the pump. 
Google was just there. Like it was very hard to drive demand. We did all the things and we were thinking about all the things we're thinking now that you're probably thinking, hey, let's make sure and put notes in the circulars. We got circulars. Let's let's put ads. Let's put window stickers on. Let's we did all that in 2000 and 2001. Canada wasn't ready for it. If you think about it, Amazon didn't come here with their warehouses. They went through a third party at uh, uh, SCI. They didn't even bring their warehouses. They weren't sure you know, Canada, how Canada was going to evolve. Bunch of reasons why we were behind, some very good ones. Um, and so, you know, we struggled a bit. And then uh, then I went over to do on the media side with Can West, as it was known back then, Can West Media, start a portal, you know, back the portal strategy. And then, and then found my way to the shopping channel, which was fantastic. Shopping channel as a catalog-based online TV business was already years ahead of everyone else, thanks to my good friend, Ted Starkman, who had, back in 99, he and I kind of aligned we got the future vision. They were already doing double digit percentage of sales online. The future was clear. And you know, it was the most interesting thing about the shopping channel. It gave, and we're going to talk about the myths of e-commerce. One of the big myths back then was it's guys and it's kids, right? Right. Uh, that's it. But what was really going on when I got to the shopping channel, well, the shopping channel is women, um, 45 to 65 and 75. Right. That's the audience, not you know, 95. And they were shopping. They were shopping online. I said, huh, that validates a big, important data point that e-commerce and that right there convinced me e-commerce is going to be what it is today, if, if not bigger. And then went, went from there and did, went to uh, the Retail Council of Canada as an advocate, both an advocate and a communicator and membership and ran conferences and then decided to strike out on my own about three, four <laughs> years ago. Um, which was, you know, I was kind of jonesing to get back to operations. Like it, it was really fun being at that high level. You got to meet so many people, but a couple of things pointed me in, Hey, there's some opportunities here, um, for me to kind of go out on my own and still stay connected. So the retail council can as a client. So it's the best mm-hmm. of both worlds, right? I still do work for them. Many people actually, cause I'm in the media speaking on their behalf, think I, I'm still there. Uh, and the podcast, the voice of retail is actually produced in conjunction with RCC. Yeah. Um, but from there, I learned so many, you know, so many lessons, met so many people. And today, my own company, I do three things. One is consulting and advisory practice. So I've got clients. You and I wound up together in Ireland because I do some work for uh, the Irish government. And they were looking to introduce Canadian retailers to Irish tech. Um, so some consulting work. And then I have public speaking business. So keynotes, that business, a little bit soft these days, as you can imagine. Um, yeah, COVID was you know, a damper the- to that. A damper, yeah. COVID was the uh, the big the big wet blanket for traveling and being on a stage. That's for sure. I mean, I remember the day, Chris. It was uh, early, late March. You know, things had started to shut down real quick, and I had fourteen gigs canceled in one day. Right? Yeah. They were I, yeah. they were planned out, and it, and that was not a surprise to me. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to be on a stage probably till 2022. That was my kind of bet. You need to do some virtual things, so I, I do some, pick up some virtual gigs for sure. Um. But from an on-person, you know, perspective, it wasn't going to be. It was going to be a while. So then I said, I better up my game in terms of the media side, which is the third leg, which is the podcast. So from one flagship co- podcast, the Voice of Retail, I now have seven podcasts, a couple, of, you know, a bunch I host, some I produce, and I didn't start my journey a couple of years ago to get into the podcast production business. But uh, yeah, COVID takes you where you go, and and some opportunity for sure everyone's looking for a new way to communicate and as you've discovered and and so welcome to the community it is a great way to 
learn and talk to people and share and be part of a community. And, you know, you're figuring it out. I'm figuring it out. We're all figuring it out. And, you know, the tools and technology that exist today just make it much easier to, yeah. I mean, it's still a lot of work as we were talking about <laughs> before, before we hit yeah. record on this, but it's the tools and technology existing today make podcasting, live streaming, so, so much more convenient than they yeah. were five, 10 years ago. So it, it, it's very similar to e-commerce because to because basically right. what took 10 years ago, a whole studio pros and, you know, a degree from Ryerson and in, 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 in radio and tech. Now you can just do hook up a microphone, these great platforms. And that's not dissimilar to e-commerce, right? When mm -hmm. I launched e-commerce for Hudson's Bay in 2000, it was like a million dollars just to figure out how to take a credit card online. Like it was a, you know, that a heavy, heavy, heavy lift. Um, but now, you know, listen, you know, so many great options to, to, to do e-commerce. I just want to touch on a few things from your career. The, I love the story about going to Sears and actually buying the pants and then <laughs> shipping them out. And I'll tell you when, when I did uh, newegg.com, we oversold on some Samsung TVs and uh, I think we were oversold by 30 of them. And I didn't want our customers to know that we couldn't fulfill because we were just trying to establish our brand. So we went over to Best Buy and bought Samsung TVs, <laughs> shipped them out to our 30 customers that we oversold on. They didn't know any different. Um, yeah. They got their item. We took a hit on the margin, but I can tell you from a from a customer standpoint, it was the right thing to do to make sure we fulfilled a, a new audience that we were trying to attract and not give a bunch of new users a poor experience with our site. So well, it was the right it was the right business decision too. I mean, you know, you're nobody makes a whole bag of money on electronics at the time, but um that customer's gonna come back because they don't know they need they don't need to know your problems. They just need to know I ordered and it delivered. Love these guys. I'll go back next time I need something. So definitely the right thing to do. And then the comment that you had really resonated with me is like, we, we didn't know where e-commerce was going and you started it well before mm -hmm. I did. I got into it in 2003, 2004 ish. And even at that point, this is how much Walmart didn't know that it would exist was yep. they put me in charge of it. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, who has they the, saw the future? They saw the they saw the future with you. That's what I would like. To that's see. that's it. Yeah, but they were like, "Who has the least amount of experience running a website? You don't know how to code, but take this project on." And uh, twenty years later, here we are. So um, it's uh, it's been a journey. So you mentioned it. You touched on it. We're going to talk about myths in e-commerce. Uh, we yeah. might even have varying uh, opinions on this uh, as well. So let's uh, let's get into this. And thank you so much for sharing that journey. It's fantastic. Uh, that the work that you've done in the industry. And I mean, you've really launched it ahead for guys like me in my career, because you put up with those battles, you told the stories in retail and why it works. And then by the mm. time I got to the chance to do it, Walmart was like, it wasn't about me selling if it was something that we should do. Everyone was else started to do it. Toys R Us had started to do it. Sears, yeah. I think was on their third or fourth try. And it was like, okay, we, we have to, we have to get this done. So that, that heavy lifting that guys like yourself did benefited me greatly. Um, the myths, let's get into it. So let's when we it. talk about um, myths in, in e-commerce, one of the ones that, uh, you know, a lot of store re bricks and mortar guys think, especially in smaller communities, is they say customers don't, don't want to buy online in my community. They don't shop that way. What are your thoughts mm -hmm. on that comment? Well, you know, at the end of the day, uh, most Canadians shop online. Now, we're at a very interesting point, right? Many Canadians have had to shop online, which right. is really interesting. I, I think 
from a broader context, that wave is going to recede a little bit. The water line is going to go up. Um, no, I, I think I think there's a this in truth there's consumers who want to do both things, but the fact that they can't shop online is very limiting and will continue to be. There are times when they want to come see it. There's no question. Yeah. Those times get, um, you know, listen. I bought a a, a freezer uh, a couple of weeks ago, and in an ordinary day in the before time, I would have went and stuck my head in that freezer just to look at it, just because of habit, really. Yeah. But I bought it, showed up, it was great. I just I just measured it. So I think there's some some interesting things happening in consumer behavior. And and Roger Martin, who was the dean of Rotman School, great strategist, talked about customer behavior is a decaying asset on the balance sheet. So what consumers used to do versus what they do over any period of time, particularly accelerated behavior changes that we've been through, are really going to change that. So it, it is it is the case. Sometimes, listen, some if if shopping was just about a transaction then e-commerce would be the answer to everything. But it isn't. And the reality is there's sometimes you want to go see, sometimes you just want to go hang out with your friends in, a, in, in the store. Sometimes you want to get it done. It really is starting to blur the line though. I mean, it, it's really the wrong question to ask what they want to do. Everyone wants an experience that is right-sized for what they're looking for, whether it's shopping online, sometimes you need it just delivered, just, just ship it to me. Sometimes you want to go check it out. Sometimes you're driving by, you're going to stop by. I think that's, we're going to go through an interesting period, Chris, because people want to get back to a normal life. And a part of a normal life is also stopping into a, a retail store. That being said, many people, I think, I, I've called it a dead cat bounce, if you're familiar, you're familiar with that yeah. saying. So people are going to rush back to stores, I think, uh, here in Ontario, they're, you know, they're starting to open up again. And then after a while, they go, oh, yeah, no, 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 I just, I'll just order this stuff online. No, yeah, I, think, I agree. I agree. I know, think, I think even from an apparel sense, I'm definitely dying to get back in store and try on some new yeah. shirts. And but once I once I remember that experience, um, maybe I'll just go back to ordering. Once I know my size, I'll just go back to ordering those yeah. those consumable shirts on online again. But definitely yeah. dying. What I tell people, Michael, is uh, people have come up, become a blended shopper. Yeah. And what I mean by that is they're going to wake up and grab their device in the morning. They're going to open up their email, browse a little bit, decide if they want to buy something, typically continue that shopping journey at lunch um, when they're supposed to be working around that 11 to 1 time frame is, is key for e-commerce. And, and then they made to make the decision on their way home. But by having the add to cart button and the ship to home option, you become part of the consideration. That's right. And if you That's don't right. have those, those abilities to ship to home, then they're going to likely shop with a different retailer and hopefully they'll go to your store but if you don't have it then you be you're, you lack the consideration well i i think the key word there's hope and as as you and i know hope is not a business strategy not a business strategy. Uh, and as consumers more and more look for that uh that blended the blurring of the lines as as steve dennis calls it they're looking for a remarkable experience what does that mean an experience that they can remark on it's no longer good enough to be it's good customer service, not great, it's good, it's okay. We're pretty good at things. There's so much competition. And you know, there's competition both online and competition in bricks and mortar. And so I think it's really either purchased or consumed in store or influenced online. Given the customers the choice is, is a fantastic option because I think it, it is the winning value proposition. If you don't do it soon, your competitors will do it. And then you'll be behind the stick and you know, for that one occasion where I need it right away, you know, that 
that bifurcation in retail that we saw happening between experience and efficiency and luxury and value still holds true, right? There was no there was no retail apocalypse, but the reality is just tremendous transformation. And and there's a spectrum. You gotta pick a spot, but you know, if you're gonna be the most efficient, you've got to be really good at it. But if you're gonna be experiential, you gotta be good at that too. All those things work. But I think consumers now expect and will more and more and more increasingly expect the chance to do all those things uh, for commodities they never imagined. And you know what? One of the things I think that's really driving that is food. Mm-hmm. And to the, to the degree you shop online, I think consuming groceries and my podcast partner, Sylvain Charlebois from Dalhousie Uni told me 4.2 million Canadians bought food online that never had done so in 2000 spins the flywheel of e-commerce because once you're shopping for food you're you're through a threshold right you you right. can buy anything once you're buying your food it's a mental threshold uh, it's not accessible to all canadians everywhere in the country but more and more uh, have done it and more and more are, are saying yeah it's a great option not always the same option it's hard to discover new not impossible though um but i think that drives this flywheel and that that that's a momentum that's just not going to not going to turn around yeah, and a great, great example there, I think, is very similar to a consumer that has been uh, adverse to doing their banking online. And yep. during COVID, they've been forced to do and accept that they have to do their banking and manage their banking online. They've now become digital first natives over a yep. course of a year. And that transforms from banking to other hobbies like retailing yep. and shopping online. So now yeah, they can't oh, imagine going backwards, right? I mean, yeah. Even in my household, my wife uh, was never a big e-commerce shopper. And I'm like, honey, you know, that's how we paid the mortgage, right? Like, <laughs> you know, yeah. shop online. And this past holiday was like this big breakthrough because she did, I think, 99% of her shopping online. She goes, this is really great. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I agree. Um, and I, I, I think that, you know, you and I talk about, if we were product managers, we talk about trial and talk about changing behaviors. and and COVID. Uh, brought a lot of not great things, but one of the things it done is is created trial of new things, right. new retailers, new products, new ways of shopping, and uh, you know things will forever be changed. Eh, it's accelerated; it was coming anyway, but it really, you know, in in some commodities, including uh, hardware, home improvement, I think it advanced probably five years from where it was going to be. Yeah, and I think it just gives us the opportunity to go back and rethink the store and. Uh, make yeah. sure that we have a, a real good engaging experience at store level. And and maybe that's more, here's how um, knowledge sessions with store with within a store or yeah. whatever. But I think we have to reimagine that in-store experience probably faster than, than we originally pl- planned on in Canada. Well, I, you know, I, and I was talking to some retailers uh, last week and, and they, and I asked them if you were to build the store, you just opened up in New York city today, how would you build it differently? And, when we talk about reimagining the experience, that could be the experience of a Bopus buy online pickup and store order. You know, there's a store, Nordstrom's big flagship store that opened up in New York City. Uh, beautiful store. Uh, it is seven stories. And you go in and you walk and it's a beautiful department store. I mean, Nordstrom's is a fantastic retailer. But you got to go down the stairs into the basement, into the back to get to the Bopus area. And I think if they were to redesign that today, that store, that would not be the experience, right? That the experience yeah. would be more integrated. And I did a podcast interview with a woman named Paula Courtney from the Verde Group. She did some work with Wharton. 
and they compared what are the what are the things the top ten experience um, breakers for consumers. And I looked at her research from ten years ago. What a difference, Chris! I mean, ten years ago the lines are too long. You know, they can't find the associate. The associate. You know, these are the complaints, right? The yeah. top complaints. Now the top complaints are you don't have the stuff in your store that I saw on your website. Your uh, your stock orders are wrong. Like it, all the top, like eight of the top ten were the integration of online and stores. The last two was like the associate was not nice to me or the lines to check out with long. Yeah, you know those are always perennial things you can you could work on. That's a big fundamental shift, and I think you know you got me thinking about how to design the store you want. And what does that store look like? Nordstrom, mm-hmm. another great example. They've designed Nordstrom local stores where they're not big and building up big department stores. They're opening up mini stores that they're only for pickup and drop off. Returns. We got to talk about returns. Returns is the most low high, low hanging fruit for improvement for retailers, I believe. Yeah. Uh, the returns experience, however that manifests itself, is the most, one of the most important experiences in the, in the entire customer journey. Yeah, I agree. I think so many people talk about returns as such a negative, but at the same time, it's an opportunity to sell or to engage with the customer and give them confidence to come back to your yeah. store again. Yeah. So I think it's, yes, yeah. it's costly to do returns, but it's also an opportunity to gain lifetime value from a customer. A- absolutely. It is done well. Returns done well, reinforce your brand and the customer experience. Now, where I think returns needs to go is it needs to be as convenient as and as many options as you have for getting delivery. Think about that. Yeah. So you can choose faster, slower, home delivery, BOPUS. You are going to need to really, I think, a great place to focus on in the years to come is how do I match that convenience and service level with return logistics? How do yeah. I make that better? And how do I, because it's a win. And as you said, you know, very savvy point, right? It lowers the barrier to any resistance. If you're on the fence about something and you know the returns process is pretty seamless, you'll buy it, Yep. right? Um, you'll buy it because you're confident they're going to take it back. It's a great, you know, home home hardware, for example. You know, I'm very confident that if I buy something and it doesn't work out, I, you know, I'm going to be taken care of. I have no doubt of that in my mind. Yeah. So that's huge because, I, you know, on those items that I'm, on the fence about that pushes me on, pushes me in and, and over to, uh, to buy it. Yeah. You're more likely to convert because you have that confidence. Yeah. To shop. Yeah. yeah you, it, it's a funny balance though. I, I just, yeah. you know, I, I, I've worked that balance at the shopping channel and sometimes you go too far if you yeah. make it too easy. And you know, one of the things we were doing, we were putting a self returned label to return stuff. And that was your first experience in the box. And our returns went up because it, it was just like, Oh, I can return this. Well, I'm going to go ahead and return it. <laughs> like it's a real sweet spot between, um, you know, it's a science, it's an art and a science. I think it's, it's deserves more attention than it probably gets on a day-to-day basis. Well, before we get on to myth number two, um, I just wanted to touch on the shopping channel there. You talked about stuff that you were being innovative back then. You see the big trends in the industry now with live selling and influencers doing live videos and selling through, through their channel. This is stuff that you did years ago and now yeah. it's the hottest trend in the industry right now in other in other countries and coming yeah. coming to north america or canada really quickly well i tell you whether it's uh, today's shopping choice which is the new brand for the shopping yeah. channel uh, or whether it's qvc which is curate it's known as curate in the states which is the old qvc hsn 
I mean, these these companies have been doing it for 30 years. Yeah. They got the model. They got the, the, you know, everybody goes, it's new. And it's not new. We, you know, the shopping channel, we did it seven days a week, 18 hours a day live, 364 days. Uh, measured to the nickel, dollar per minute sales. It's it's a fantastic uh, it's a fantastic vehicle. And they you learn the tradecraft. Like there's a tradecraft to selling. You just don't start up and just start, you know, ramming about stuff. And the guests are very important. You know, fu- lots of funny things. I met all kinds of interesting people. Suzanne Summers, Joan Rivers, Kim Kardashian. And what you learn pretty quickly is it's hard. It's hard to do because you've got, you got no script and you got to be interesting and you got to be you know, you got to cycle through product benefits. It is easier said than done in some ways, just like a great podcast. Yeah. And, you know, I bet you when you have guests like that, you have to be able to roll with the punches as they're having dialogue coming out of nowhere. Right. And you just got to, you can't look shocked on screen. <laughs> well, it was hard not to. I remember I was in the studio and, jo- and Joan Rivers was just a hoot. I got to know Joan. Um and uh, she got mad at one of the stagehands and literally on camera picks, picked up one of the props and threw it at his head. And and we all kind of went and then kind of re- regained our composure. Yeah, lots of stuff goes on behind the scenes for sure. But, uh, you know, listen, it's it's a great way of selling. There's no better way to, to work through that product ladder, right, of, you know, technical, functional and emotional benefits. Start over again. Technical, functional, and emotional benefits, and it's it's a discipline, and it's a rigor. And can you do it on your mobile phone? Can influencers do it? Can you engage people to do it? Yes, but it's not easy. Yeah. Okay. Myth number two: online is going to cannibalize my in-store sales, and some people think up to fifty percent. Yeah, it's it's kind of asking the wrong question, right? It's an old chestnut. I've been dealing with that for my entire career. We're going to, it basically says we're going to sell it anyway. Right. And, and to some degree, um, yes, but in many degrees you may not. And again, hope is not a strategy. Uh, people are going to shift, not because you can sell it online and they'll look for other alternatives. So in a world where there's only one place selling one thing, um, you know, that's not really the reality anymore. So I think it's a, it's an old chestnut. Um, yes, there are some people who would have come to the store to buy it. Uh, but I guarantee that they would also look around to shop online if that's something they're going to buy online. And that increasingly is more and more and more commodities. Yeah. And I think the other piece is, okay, let's, let's go with the premise that they're going to make, we're going to take 50% of the sales. Yeah. But our customers building better, bigger baskets online. In my history, they've always built bigger baskets online than the retail store. So you're now influencing a larger revenue stream for your organization and that all goes back to the store and the big pie pie for the company anyways so okay we may take 50 percent, but how much are we influencing what's the effect from you know yeah. what's the average conversion on a on an e-commerce platform one to three percent um so what are the other 97 percent of the customers doing that are That's on right. your e-commerce platform they're they're researching yeah and and i think though the 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 advice I'd have to e-commerce professionals when you're talking about that is there's a kernel of truth to it, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, describing it as cannibalization is a bit of a red herring. But if you just allow, not allow, but if someone just goes into your site, buys something, and you never talk to them again, you know, you're probably not going to maximize your opportunities. It is right. the beginning of the discussion, not the end of it. So you know, when they come to the store, a great manager, a great store manager, um, even if they don't know the customer 
will, you know, will help them out. Maybe they'll buy one thing. Maybe they came to buy one and they buy three. Maybe they're encouraged to buy, Hey, did you see this on sale? Uh, it's a real hot seller and they'll buy that thing. Like, how do you, how do you model that and mirror that online? Harder, as you know, not easy. Uh, and that is ground that, uh, that we continue to work on. Um, you know, the idea of inspiration and impulse buying online is harder than it is in store, but it's, uh, it's coming. And that, that could be a follow-up email. That could be a follow-up text. Hey, you bought this. Uh, I'm sure you'd like that. I mean, that idea has been around for since McDonald's offered you French fries with your chocolate milkshake, right? Yeah. If you like this, you might like some of that. Uh, the degree that you can get, you know, smart about it and a good merchant knows what to offer them, you know, sell them some replacement batteries, sell them some replacement buffing pads, whatever it takes to model what a great store manager would do um, to make it not, you know, cannibal Asia's, you know, to make it one plus one equals three. Right. And if, if your customer happened to purchase off of your website, the latest and greatest barbecue as a store manager, that's now an opportunity to reach out to that customer and say, here's the, here's the barbecue cover that you didn't get when you were shopping online or here's the accessories that you need, or by the way, that we've now got a gazebo for barbecues, right? So there's so many now touch points, regardless of who got that initial sale, that a store can play a part and a role in, in selling to them a second, third, fourth time. That's right. That's right. And, and taking it one step further, uh, with your barbecue example, which I love, I just bought my fifth barbecue. Um, so a bit of a nut for barbecues, um, you know, offer me a service online where you ship me briquettes once a month. Right. And it just shows up at my door. And, and again, um, maybe you'll come back to buy it from where you bought the barbecue, but maybe you'll just buy it where you're close to at work or play or the cottage, you know, take advantage of what you can for these fulfillment, refillment revenue opportunities. The, those are great, by the way, at the shopping channel and, and, uh, you know, buy this and then we'll ship it to you every 30 or 60 days. It repl- you know, the replenishment business. Oh, um, these subscriptions, Michael, I'm addicted yeah. to them. I have soap coming to me. I have my razor blades <laughs> coming to me. It's it's amazing. They they get me hooked every time, but it's the convenience. I can't pass it up. Yeah, I mean, I've got, I've got it for pet food uh, right. from someone you used to work for, uh, from uh, Ren's Pets. Ren's Pets, great group. Uh, love Ren's Pets. I love what they do. And uh, listen, I... I, I'm not, you know, I got a big dog. I get no joy in going to the pet store. That's mm-hmm. not for me. Um, I'm not that engaged. I don't need to go to the dog. I don't need, I don't get a great experience to go to the pet store and lugging home a 50 pound bag of food right. um, for my dog. I love the fact that it just shows up on my doorstep when I need it. Love it. Love yeah, it. And, and there was Fantastic. the whole debate about whether, you know, you stop customers from coming in and building a basket because they just get this reoccurring dog food. But ultimately, if a person cares about their pet, they're going to be in there for the treats, yeah. the toys, the experience of those stores. Those stores that Renz has are amazing. Um, clean, tidy, store expertise, yeah. the product knowledge that those associates have. Um, yep. you, you can't, you can't replicate that online right now. So no. So um, if I need, if I need a recommendation, but you know, they're doing a pretty good job. I mean, it's a good lesson for us because you know, they, they, they send out an email. They seem to be taking a look at what you're buying and saying, you know, we realize you've got a German shepherd Rottweiler, so we're not going to try and sell you a, a, you know, a lap dog type toy, basic block and tackling in e-commerce, but it, it, yeah. it, you know, it's, it works, you know, we, we buy all kinds of stuff from them. And I haven't stepped foot in a Ren store in 18 months. Right, right. All right, myth number three. 
consumers are only price sensitive when it comes to shopping online. They only want to buy those those items that go on sale. Yeah, it, you know, I think there there is a kernel of truth that Canadians are extremely value oriented, uh, and there is also the kernel of truth that e-commerce exposes perfect ish pricing perfection. Um, should I look for a better price for a like-minded thing? If it was all just about price, uh, then you know it would all just be about a couple of retailers, and not they're not even that great on price uniformly across right. uh, all the products. So no, it's not about price. It's about that basket of things, which is, am I going to get it on time? Can I return it? Do I trust them? I think, you know, back actually, it's interesting because in the early days of e-commerce, we relied heavily on, is it a safe credit card transaction? We don't mm-hmm. talk about that too much anymore. I mean, as you know, the risk is on the merchant side, but you really don't see that as a barrier. That was one of, you know, when I was first doing e-commerce, that was one of the top one or two barriers you know, is it safe to transact online with my credit card? I think we're long past that. Um, so then it becomes, well, you know, can I trust them? Is it going to show up? Are they going to ship me what I asked for? Um, all those kind of things go into price. And and there's, you know, I've looked many times when I've seen price and said, you know, plus or minus, uh, I'll go with the one I trust more, the one I think they're going to do a better job. And uh, sometimes I'll you know, sometimes again, if I'm on the fence about a product, I'll buy it from a brick and mortar so I know I can return it easier. Yeah, all those things kind of go in. So no, I, I think I think there's a kernel of truth. People people price shop because Canadians price shop. I mean, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's it's what it's what we do. It's no surprise you we would also do it online, but to the exclusion of all other considerations, I don't think so. No, I agree. I mean, people have been price sensitive forever. You used to sit at your coffee sure. table with every flyer open and right. go in and compare the flyers and grab coupons out of them. And and now that you can do that in a digital experience, there's really no difference. It's just a little bit more convenient yep. for a customer. But I, I love what you said about the value. Canadians, I think, appreciate more value versus a discount on a single item. It's that whole offer, your whole proposition. And, and you may be a retailer that offers just great content. And if you're priced higher mm-hmm. by two to 5%, I'm willing to pay that difference because you're making me have confidence in that purchase decision. That's right. Or your product is unique or, or, or like if, mm-hmm. if you I mean, sometimes some of the products you have are price fighters, right? You know, the merchants are going to have a strategy where they're going to fight on price on some key products, right? Maybe they, they private label, maybe they're just going to fight on price. They're going to make a statement on certain products and they're going to offer it on price. Others you know, it doesn't have to be uniformly the case. I mean, I, you know, one of the best things we did at Zellers, and this is an offline example, is uh, back when we were competing with Walmart, is we we assembled two shopping baskets at the front of the store. And we said, these are identical items. Here's how much this basket is and here how much this other basket is. So, you know, perception is very important. Um, you know, lowest price is the law kind of stuff. Uh, but it's not, you know, sometimes it comes down to price. Sometimes it is a low price on one item, but not the other. It's a basket of goods. Um, hey, listen, price is important, cost is important. You can't be out of whack, right? If you're out of line for like-to-like items for somebody you, you trust equally, you're probably not going to get that sale. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. So myth number four is actually one that I brought up because I know a couple of small retailers that have gone out of business during COVID and they didn't they didn't adapt or pivot during COVID. They were traditional bricks and mortar store and they just wanted consumers to to call in, and that was the method of of getting the product. Mm. They didn't have a website, and 
And basically the comment from, from the folks that I was speaking to was, it's too much work to sell through other channels. And I mean, having that perspective now, I think if they could go back 18 months, they would, <laughs> right. have, they would have put in that right. extra effort. The alternative is worse, basically. Right. The alternative is worse. So what are your thoughts on that comment? Gonna, and both of us, I know we will not lie that e-commerce is a lot of work, mm -hmm. but. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, my number, I, you know, when I'm invited, when I talk to, um, I was talking to the media who kind of talked to store owners, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic. And I said, listen, um, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. Next best time is today. If you're just get started and get going, but. Don't think starting e-commerce is something you can do off the corner of your desk and be successful at it. And this is the 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 paradox of the platforms now, right? Yeah. Shopify. It's very easy to launch an e-commerce site. Like like when I think about the grief I went through, you know, 20 years ago to launch an e-commerce site, it's ridiculously easy for anyone at any size to launch an e-commerce site. Yeah. Doesn't mean you're going to be successful, right? And the mechanics, the plumbing, that comes easy. But you, you have to look at it like you're opening an entire new store. And, you know, where I find indies or all retailers kind of underestimate the amount of work to be successful at it, right? Sometimes you can be lucky, uh, but again, luck, not a strategy. It is a lot of work. Um, and, you know, the phone, you know, people aren't going to phone in. They're just not going to do it. Now, is it easy to get their attention if you haven't built a community in social media? No, um, but you got to start. And I think, you know, when I think of the Main Street retailers I talk to who are more successful, they already were managing a community. They'd already made that commitment, which sometimes they would question. Hey, I spent so much time online. I don't know what it's helping. They now know. Like right. they now know that community is what kept them in business. Uh, they developed some cohesion. It's interesting. I got new products. And really, Chris, this is where the browsing happened. Like people browsed over the COVID era online. I mean, this is a big transformation that we, we can talk about later, but you know, there wasn't much browsing in stores during the COVID era. I just want to get in and get out, right? That yeah. was the customer behavior. There wasn't, nobody was just popping into a store to check it out. I'd love to do that again. That time will come soon. But a lot of it was, um, you know, research online, shop in store that will continue. But to your point, uh, yes, uh, no matter what your size is, you should have an e-commerce site, but you should take it seriously. Getting traffic takes time, mm -hmm. takes an investment. It all takes time. Yes. Just like running your store. What I loved is an example that I, I think it was out of New York City, if I remember the article correctly. Um, a bunch of store owners got together and built basically their own community marketplace. Mm. Yep. Um, so it wasn't a heavy lift on one individual mom and pop store. But this whole street, this whole community got together, built a website, and were able to service from one, one platform a number of their brands, which I thought was just so clever and collaborative that made yep. a lot of sense because maybe someone had a skill set on development. Maybe someone had a skill set on a pricing strategy. Whatever it was, this community worked really well during COVID together, and they all, they all stayed open because they had this micro marketplace. Well, and it's a great point. And, and if you think of what's happening in Quebec, they're doing that on a larger scale. Pané Bleu, which is being run in, in Quebec, is a place for consumers to go to find all the local retailers who sell online, to put them all together in a place. Uh, you know, I was, I was looking at one of the industries that was really hard hit in COVID, of course, was the beer industry. So, you know, the restaurants shut down. It's a strangled a lot of volume. And, and 
the laws change. They could suddenly ship to home, but I didn't know that for all the brands that I might shop for. So they all got together and created a single site. It wasn't even as sophisticated as a common transactional platform. They all had a transactional platform. It was like old school portal. Here's all the brands that sell direct online and you can kind of, but pool your resources like a, like, like a, like a, like you do in real life, right? Like on main street, you have a business development group uh, that comes together and say, you give me a buck, you give me a buck and we'll do some great stuff and bring people to our, our community. The same applies online. I think, I think it's a winning strategy because uh, it is, you know, it leverages what you can compete with, which is your mm-hmm. physicality, your presence in the community, but you got to get awareness and, and that's not cheap anymore. Right. Great, great point. Uh, next piece. Uh, this one I, I laugh at all the time because I, I always, you know, you have code freezes and the, <laughs> people think that the holidays is so busy, but at the same time, yeah. people f- kind of shut down. The holidays are a bad time to evaluate new technologies is one that I hear consistently. I'd mm. uh, love to hear your take on that. Well, you know, it's it's there is some merit to to locking down your code time and planning for peak, but at the end of the day, you start to get to a cycle where, you know, you can't lose six months of development time. And and this is also philosophically moving from, you know, your bulk development to an agile format, right? And, you know, being agile means that you're always developing and iterating and you're not going to code lock. Right. Um, I think there's probably some, co- but I think the challenge with code lock, if I unpack that concern is, you know, I'm only doing updates five times a year. And yeah, you know, you don't want a big update in the middle of holiday because it's massive. It affects everything and you don't know all the implications. But if you're doing the agile approach, um, and I've heard Simon Rodriguez talk about this, you know, very frequently is a little bit by little bit by little bit, you are you're not going to break anything significant and you can fix it. So right. don't, you know, freeze up six months of, of coding time. So, uh, you know, you got to have the right organization for it. You got to be agile. But uh, yeah, I don't know. What do you, what do you got? Do you guys code lock? I mean, what's, what's your experience in your career? Yeah. I mean, ultimately when I started off, it was shutting things down. You don't, don't, uh, don't risk the uh, golden quarter during uh, those, those seasons. We don't, (laughs) and then, uh, then you would start fresh in, in January, but ultimately now it's, it's much like you said, you have an agile approach. You get, you get your, your work done, some smaller releases, nothing you shouldn't be launching anything major like a new platform but um but tweaking i think is ongoing and you know what this question also represents is the fact of should you be meeting new partners like if say i'm leveraging bizarre voice do i want to reevaluate a different partner during the holiday season um for ratings and reviews and in my standpoint is you know i'm i'm always learning and meeting with new providers because Hmm. if if i'm not doing it in the golden quarter because it's um too 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 risky of our business then that i'm now six months behind because i know i'm not getting anywhere to implementation until june july august if i haven't had those meetings in q4 so uh, to me it's it's just an always on strategy now for for meeting and and engaging with uh, suppliers you know, one of, one of the pieces of advice I, I, I would give everyone listening, the, it, particularly if you're running a shop like you, is have your existing vendors repitch you mm. a, as, if, as if they're brand new. And I guarantee, I can pretty much guarantee you will find out they have a feature that you're not using that you might even be looking for. Like have them, have them come in and repitch you. 
and you'll find so many interesting things. I never knew we could do that. Like it's just like spends the cycles to to do that and, and it'll be time well spent. Yeah. Johnny Russo and I touched on that in, in one mm-hmm. of our conversations. He he would hold a, a supplier summit when whether that be Facebook and, and LinkedIn and all of his partners would come together and talk about what what they can offer and, and re-educate and make sure that everyone was aligned with the capabilities from when you launched two years ago with that partner. Uh, I called it vendor rehabilitation meetings, but he, he was <laughs> That sounds a little more strict. Yeah, right? re- yeah exactly. He was that's like, that's like, you're, that's like you're, you're calling him in for a bit of a beating on the carpet. Um. <laughs> well, I always negotiate on price. So every, yeah, yeah. every, every time it's a renegotiation, but I thought it was a great comment from both you and, and yeah. from Johnny to do that. So um, yeah. next piece is uh, running an e-commerce store is much cheaper than a bricks and mortar. Uh, yes and not really. I mean, in some ways, uh, it depends how you do it. Mm-hmm. It's more about time than money in some ways. Uh, in e-commerce store, you know, you've got to pay for the people. The platform costs are much lower than they used to be, which is yeah. a real blessing. Um, but it's still, it's still an investment of time and you've really got to capture those soft costs that really can, you know, cost processing returns. What happens to the returns, higher returns percentage. Um, so Yeah. You know, I, I I think a value again. It's one of those things. I think you're probably asking the wrong question. Right. Um, you know, moving to you know, should I open a store or open a website? Yes, right. Uh, the winning proposition is this seamless integration of both. Not necessarily for everyone. And listen, e-commerce is is still a, a technology play, even though the the pipes are easy, uh, easier to connect and easier to stitch together. Um. And it's not easy. Lots of competition and some pretty big global players in this country are some pretty fierce competition. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, you could never get, you, you just can't out innovate. You can't, you certainly can't outspend them to innovate, uh, but you can be pretty clever about it. So, you know, listen, they both, they both intersect, right? Listen, at the end of the day, building a store, Warby Parker, for example, announced they're opening 30 more stores on top of their hundred. They drive e-commerce sales. So what mm-hmm. exactly are and how are you measuring what the store is there to do? It does a lot of different things. And it's a seamless, you know, that's that opportunity to to be present in a community, to be in the right place, but also to drive e-commerce sales. Then, you know, you think of it differently. Yeah, I, I've been very blessed in my career to do a bricks and mortar and then develop an e-commerce site for it a few times. But I've also been blessed to work with Newegg.com, a pure play online player that I saw transparency to the numbers and <clears throat> without a bricks and mortar, acquiring customers was actually very, very costly yeah. because we didn't have the brand presence that, you know, I did with a Walmart or here with, with home hardware. So there's, there's other costs like that you have a savings on because you don't have the expenses of the stores, but you, with a bricks and mortar strategy, you can leverage those stores and mini DCs. Um, yeah. With e-commerce, you have to open up more DCs. So it's it's an offset. A lot of times, the the only savings right now that I see is the cost of the platforms have gone way down. Before, you know, my first website was ATG and Fatwire, and it was it was an <laughs> eye watering, eye watering, right? right? Eye watering. And, and now you can do a Shopify store in a weekend and have it up and running. Yeah. And just have to figure yeah. out how the the traffic model is going to work, but. I mean, the, the thing that's gone the other way, though, is is the plat the other type of platforms is you know the whether it's Google, Facebook, uh, Snapchat, uh, TikTok, 
is the platforms, it's harder and harder. You know, they're almost like a utility now. You have to be on them, but it's hard to differentiate. It's hard to get, you know, in the early days of Google, I remember the early days, it was great. Hardly anybody was there. You, you know, it's fantastic. Your ROI was just, you know, jumping off the page. You couldn't give them enough money, basically. Um, that's harder these days, right? Because everyone's, you know, it's harder to be more present on Facebook than your competitors. It's harder to be more clever about buying keywords on Google. Uh, they're almost necess- necessary as foundational elements. So what is it that's going to take you over the top? You know, social media, how you use it, how you build community, how you build customer service, how you leverage your stores. Yeah. And even when you talk about the paid search I mean, escalating in price, now it's even more expensive because people are buying your branded terms. <laughs> this, yeah. It's not a great strategy, but they, yeah. they do it and it just drives up the paid search costs even more. So yeah. Great. Yeah, I mean, I mean, listen, you, we all know retailers, some retailers have done fantastic during the COVID era. Some retailers have really suffered, uh, but the platforms uniformly have done really well. And uh, it would be nice. I, You know, I, I worked for George Heller at uh, Zeller's um, and he, he, I remember at a meeting, he said, I want us to be successful. I don't want the vendors rolling up in the best cars. I want us to have the nice cars too. So, you know, uh, this infrastructure can't all be one-sided. We've all got to make money and, um, you know, you and me struggling to, to make sales. Um, the platforms have done a, have made out pretty well. Uh, so, you know, time for a, a, a rec, not a reckoning, a reckoning is too harsh a word, but, uh, you know, partnership is not too soft a word. So somewhere in between, uh, where that, that needs to be, you know, they need to come and help, but you know, they've done well, all of which is to say it's not easy to build traffic. You got to you got to try 10, 20 things, not one thing anymore that works. Yeah. And you also have to understand your audience and what works for your yep. audience or in the different personas that you're going after may not work for uh, another retailer. So um, it's it's a mix and you got to do a lot of testing, learning to uh, to find that right mix. The next piece is. Um, this one's funny. I, I had a laugh at this because I've never experienced this, but um, it is a myth that's out there that product data is easy. <laughs> oh my God. What a myth that is. Product data is the hardest thing. It, you know, it's a little easier now, but it, it I can tell you when I launched hpc.com, the vendors had no idea. Like I, I, I'd send out these sheets for facts yeah, and I would of two hundred products, and I'd want the cube of the of the of the package, and I got ones for everything right. from one vendor. Yeah. Had no idea, right? They so I actually hired someone to go into the Zeller store for a summer job and measure products, right? Just to get the dimensions right. Just to get the dimensions right. Just yeah. to get the dimensions. Yeah, <laughs> Not even right. Um, things are better now, but product data is hard, man. And and the, whether it's metadata or product data. Uh, it could be hard and it could be tricky. There's, it, we're way better off than we were 20 years ago. Um, but I still see websites where the data just doesn't answer, like it's thin. It doesn't have, yeah. you know, doesn't really tell me everything I need to know. It, it, it is one of those block and tackling things I think is, um, I think too easily overlooked uh, that if you've got some data that's okay, it, for some items you want as much data as you can get and that's still a great thing to have. Yeah, and I think, you know, I do a lot of storytelling with our suppliers on why good data is so important, especially when you're you're doing compare features on the website or you have the navigation yeah. and you're allowing customers to to put in some more requirements to get to the right item. And if we don't have those pieces of data, 
then the site's never going to perform or you're not going to convert uh, as yep. well as you as you can. So getting us the right amount of data and images and <clears throat> 360 or video content that go along with it now is even more critical. And I, I think consumers, because they're so savvy, um, they it's now table stakes. It's an expectation to have yep. those things. And when the suppliers don't need, don't give it and we have to go put an item on a dimensionalizer and get the dimensions, Ugh. it's just it's just delays the process of getting that item yeah. up onto the website. And they have that information. They've give you can see it on a competitor's website, but somebody didn't fill out the file and it's just, um, so data is not easy. Yeah. And then taking it from legacy systems and importing it onto a website, that's a whole Tough. other episode. Tough. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I remember at the shopping channel, the descriptions were all very short form because the fields mm. weren't big enough. And initially we thought we could, you know, port over all the descriptions from the product masters, but the descriptions didn't work. They were blue, blah, you know, they, they, they just, you know, we had to start from scratch uh, on some of those systems. So, um, you know, it, and you see that demonstrated when you look at your receipt, if you shop on a store, some descriptions are great. Some descriptions you can't even, you don't even know what you just bought. There's so many short forms in it. You have no idea what you just bought on a, on your receipt. Cause it's so right. Concocting, you know, it's so uh, it's so shortened and and for other good reasons, but not for e-commerce. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times when you start off on an e-commerce site, the company's only ever done flyers or shelf tags, and the the information was just designed for that. So now we got to go back and scrub it and recreate it and yep. make sure it's unique as well, because uh, God forbid it be the same as someone else's Dewalt drill. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, so, I've, I've bought, I mean, recently experienced, right? I bought a part from a store and it, it was the same brand of the air compressor, not the air compressor, but the power washer. And uh, it was, it was merchandised with it. Didn't it fit? Didn't work. Like it was, it was the same brand. It was a quick connect thing, yeah. but it didn't fit. And it was merchandised with the same, with that product. I'm like, oh my God, that's, that's, now I got to return it, you know? Um, yeah. But I'm a little frustrated because if, you know, just merchandise the right item. But I know behind the scenes that takes the right data. Yeah, the right data and scrubbing it and making sure that the, the affiliated item or the recommended item is is truly those same dimensions. And, you know, even just this from converting from metric to imperial um, is is an effort in itself, Yeah, uh, which usually you're getting one or the other and no, no suppliers consistent. One does one method and one does another. So... Um, yeah. So I, I wouldn't say that it's easy. It, it has improved and there's there's content houses that you can purchase content from. And um, I think those things improve the process, but it's it's not. It's a bit, guy. you know, I, I thought the vendor community, uh, the vendor community has a lot of a big role in that. And yeah. I'll take you back to when Sears was king. And let me tell you, when, I, when we launched HBC.com. We were just hoping to take a few nicks out of Sears. Like they were huge. Like they had a $1.7 billion catalog business. They had it all figured out. They had pick and pack. They had eaches that people knew how to market and merchandise at the unit level. They had catalogs. Yeah. Um, you know, and but importantly, very importantly, their vendors were trained on how to ship for that format. And that's the part, you know, how they ship items um in apparel. It's it's are they singly wrapped or do they come in a big box that's all in a hanger which is you know two hours of rework so the, the you know the vendors and now i think the next generation of that because this podcast isn't a history lesson the next generation of that is, is perfect 
is getting to a place where it's purpose-built packaging. In other words, I know, I don't want to just, it's not the same packaging to take it off the shelf, put it in a box and ship it to a home. We know that for some items, it doesn't work. Um, Purpose-built packaging. P&G's done some great work on Tide, for example. It ships in a box, right? It's made to be shipped e-commerce. I think that's the next step in in vendor packaging and and innovation, that purpose-built. And now you're hitting the percentage of sales that that makes sense financially, right? You've hit that economic threshold where it makes sense for them to have an on-shelf format and an e-commerce format from a packaging perspective that'll take the movement and the gyrations and the, you know, one vendor, I, one retailer I shop from puts tape around all the liquid seals. Yep. Right. Somebody's, I think somebody's doing that in the warehouse. I think. Yep, um, they are. But it's a good, it's a good idea, right? It's, it, sh- they should shift from the factory that way. This is your e-commerce order. This is your store order. Again, you needed volumes to, to go up. I think we got that now. Yeah. And I mean, in a wholesale environment, you're still dealing with a single pick versus a case pack pick and yep. what's, what's easier and what's more profitable. And a lot of times those, you, you reduce your inventory and your selection because picking an item that's a single pick is, is really not worth it for, for a retailer. So you, maybe you try to sell five rolls of, of duct tape, but is, is that a natural experience for a customer to buy that much duct tape? No. So you end up taking that item out of the equation because the packaging is not right for an e-commerce standpoint. So great, yep. great points there. Yeah. You got to um, break it out. And... Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so <clears throat> I guess we've got a couple more here. Uh, promoting an e-commerce site is, is difficult. And, and I, I do agree. It's, it's difficult yeah. from, to get a lot of traction. I don't think it's difficult in the tactics that are available to you to promote it. So, you know, you, you mentioned that you're going to be doing a podcast focused on some entrepreneurial stuff. Um, <clears throat> I've done many business with hockey socks on my own, this podcast, and I yeah. can leverage, I leverage my own social media accounts. I leverage my network to, to spread the word. So viral marketing is so important and yeah. uh, influencer it, marketing and um, influencer marketing. So you don't need a big budget to really get uh, things going. I think the hardest part is for an entrepreneur or someone starting out is to make sure the metrics are right. Make sure your advertising mm-hmm. dollars are not outweighing your profitability because yeah. then it becomes overwhelming. You have to, you have to really figure out that, that proper mix for your PNL so you can stay in business and keep building on to your, right. your advertising dollars. Yeah. I mean, the, the great news about uh, platforms like Google, Facebook, Snapchat, they're, they make it so easy for you to, to use them if you think about yeah. it, right? Like you can, you can, you can play with multinational companies. You can have that same. The other side is that they make it really easy for you to spend money with them. <laughs> um, so, you know, you just got to be careful. Your, your, your advice is well, uh, well-spoken is, is just be careful, um, spend your money wisely and, and know your customers and know your product. You know, what's different about your product? Why would, you know, is your offering remarkable? Is it something different? Um, it is very easy. The easiest thing in the world is to give a search marketing company a uh, hundred dollars to go buy stuff. That's the easiest thing in the world to do. Um, it may not be the most efficient, or productive, or effective thing to do. Um, and that's where the that's where the fun starts, right? Bit of influencer, bit of sampling, bit of this, bit of that, bit of being clever. Uh, that's you know being a great entrepreneur, and and that entrepreneurism takes root at all levels of of corporations where they look for all kinds of interesting solutions to. Uh, to get out there and get people aware and be consistent at it, right? You got to be consistent 
Um, yeah, and I think you got to yeah. look at, do you want to be like spray and pray? Do you want to get it just in front of eyeballs or do you want to yeah. be very targeted and specific and focus yep. on conversion to your core audience first? And then you get onto spending dollars that are just more maybe top line funnel versus bottom line funnel. Um, so, yep. Um, yeah, lots and lots of great resources for, for people to go learn about these things, right? Um, you know, before you, we kind of had to make it up again. We're, this isn't a history lesson, but now there's there's a lot of resources for you, including the vendors. The vendors uh, of these platforms are great at teaching you how to use them because, yeah. um, you know, they they I think I think they they take an enlightened perspective that said, you know, if we take one hundred dollars from you, and never see you again. That's not a great relationship. So let's teach right. you how to use the platform properly and you will have a long-term relationship. So I think they're very sophisticated and and I think that's a very successful approach. But I love the comment, you keep saying that it's not a history lesson, but ultimately if we're going to to really um, have success, we gotta, we gotta watch some of the, the mistakes that were made by other retailers. And yep. you know, you, you talk about Sears, the catalog model was e-commerce. Um, look at consumers distributing, right? The whole, <laughs> like, they were ahead of their time. They, they absolutely were. I mean, it just, you know, wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, uh, you know, there's many models that they're bopus, right? Like yep. it was walk in, order something, and they kind of deliver it and hand it to you. Uh, it just fell out of fashion. I've, some folks have tried to launch it again, but, you know, these, uh, you know, Sears is is the poster child. I, you know, the the catalogers had it made, we thought. Yeah. Uh, if you were a cataloger, you you ticked all the boxes. Like you could not fail, but they somehow managed to fail. Uh, well, I think you know, the failure comes in the fact that are you willing to reinvent, pivot, do test and learn, or are you going to stay with what works? And when you stay with what works too long, you become irrelevant. Well, what 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 I think you know, there's a lot of you know, it's a great business case, but I think on their catalog business, they they stayed siloed. It was the catalog yep. business and the store business, and the two didn't meet. And over time, people expected them to merge together. I want to buy what's in the store online. Um, and I think the two, you know, those silos belong on farms kind of yep. thing, right? Uh, is is that eventually that and many other things kind of, you know, led to the demise of, of the catalog business. And, and you know, they, they had a great business, right? It was a billion dollar business of people, you know, place and orders online and and they were a big part of many small communities it was a gathering place to go to place an order and and to pick it up and so you know communities small communities uh you know miss it across yeah. across the country you home hardware is in small communities it's a real it's a real blessing um but in some small communities they they miss that other piece right that yeah. access to the broader assortment they sure do they they uh they loved being able to to get those um, apparel type items and and just you know it yeah. felt like it was Canadian to them and by well you could get a refrigerator right like if, if you could go yeah. on a Sears and you and if you had a cottage up northern Canada they would figure out and they had the infrastructure to have okay Bob we need to get a you know a refrigerator onto an island cottage in Temiskaming yeah that's Bob he's got a canoe and you know like they had all that figured out like yeah. that infrastructure disappeared actually it fell apart and it still hasn't been rebuilt in the same way. Yeah, great point. So history lesson. Make sure you pay attention to retail history. Um, okay, <clears throat> sales will normalize or return to a normal uh, normal state in retail after COVID. Uh, well, it depends what you call normal. I think there's going to be what the, uh, what the finance people call a dead cat bounce. In other words, there'll be a huge rush back to stores. 
I mean, stores have been closed for 150 days in some parts of Canada, not others. And and I think people will go back to stores. We all yearn to have a more normal life and shopping is part of a more normal life. Um, but I don't think spoken differently that e-commerce is going back to where it was, right? The waterline is going to go up. We don't understand. I don't understand all the changes that are about to happen in in retail. Anyone who tells you they know uh, exactly what's going to happen, I don't know where they're getting their information because we just don't know. It's been such a tremendous change. I think there will be a normalization. I think it's gonna. I think it's gonna take us another year to figure out the real impacts of the COVID era because right. there's. You know, when I talk to retailers today, they're like, I don't even look at 2020 numbers. They're meaningless. They don't mean anything. I look at 2019, LLY, last yeah. last year. 2020 numbers were so bizarre. 2020 mon- numbers are so bizarre. What the hell lessons am I going to learn from them? Um, so the key is understanding, and we don't all understand this exactly. What's the difference between the accommodations, the changes, the consumers, and we made to accommodate for the COVID era versus what's going to stick? Like right. what's a structural change? Um, and we can make some assumptions. We can assume e-commerce waterline's gone up uh, from where it was before. We can assume it's going to recede a bit. There's no question. When stores open up, there'll be less e-commerce, right? Yeah. Um, but it's moved it forward and you're still going to see that growth. You're already seeing it it off today. Last year is up 70%. This year, so far this year, it's up 50%. You're not going to post numbers like 50% growth year after year. right? But right. you will return to double digit growth, which is what it was in the before time. But what I find fascinating though, about this thought process is that we're still, we're still calling it e-commerce sales. And to me, it's just part of the Mm -hmm. retail mix. And so are consumers going to rush back to the store? Yes. But are you as a retailer that's selling apparel still getting that customer sale because you have the, the mobile site, you have your e-commerce traditional desktop site and you have the store. So ultimately regardless of which channel, don't you just want them shopping with you? Um, so yeah. I mean, I, I mean, there, there are some big exceptions, right? There's, there's, you know, brands you and I can think of that are major apparel retailers that do not sell online right. and are very successful. Right. So, yeah. you know, there's no firm laws in this about consumer behavior. They've got a very unique value proposition and it works well in bricks and mortar. They could probably, I think they're getting outflanked by some resale sites and by other different concepts. I mm-hmm. think, I think they're 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 losing momentum and they're being outflanked. So I, I'm not sure they can continue to do the same approach in exactly the same way. Um, but yeah, I mean, listen. At the end of the day, it gets right back to the beginning of your conversation. This this blurring of the lines, right? Um, when we talk about what's e-commerce percentage versus what's brick and mortar, is asking the wrong question. Yeah, it's 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 at the end of the day, uh, it's retail, right? Influenced yeah. by bought online, return to store, you know, all the number of wonderful ways that we can serve customers as a, as an industry. Yeah. How do we grow our PL? and Yeah. And that's, that's, you know, share of the pie, right? That's, yep. that's, you know, a bit bigger, better offer. That's being more compelling. That's being a great merchant. You guys got great merchants. They find unique items that solve problems. They do all those things. Uh, and that, you know, businesses who win have kind of figured out where they exist and can thrive on that spectrum of experience, luxury, value, and uh, and luxury, right? Experience, what did I say? Ex- efficiency, experience, <laughs> experience, efficiency, value, and luxury. You got to figure out where you're going to live because if you're in the middle, uh, that's probably the danger zone. Yeah, it's great. Great. So, Michael, I've loved chatting with you. We're 
we're well into this conversation and I could chat with you for three, four more hours. Cause we just you talk and talk retail forever, but yeah, we only fantastic. have one more, one more myth to go here. And this is, <clears throat> this is one where constantly people are like, because they're a Canadian bricks and mortar retailer, they feel that they should focus on delivering e-commerce. Funny. See how I did that there? Delivering e-commerce in, in their Canadian market. But the reality is there's a, there's a conversation I think that needs to happen is do you need to sell within your core or should you go cross border and look at a new market with your e-commerce operations? And uh, the myth, a lot of people think is wait, let me get Canada right first and then I'll look into uh, cross-border selling into the U.S. What are your thoughts? Well, I think it <clears throat> comes down to what your value proposition is. If you're selling, if you're selling the same things, and we we asked ourselves this many times at Hudson's Bay, like many times, and and the question early days, well, why don't you go global? And we had some differentiated product. Think of the point blankets. Think of the heritage products that had a global appeal. But you know, at the end of the day, most of the business was done with with. A kit, let's say a KitchenAid stand mixer. And if you're going to, you're going to try and do business in the United States or anywhere else, and you don't have physical stores, then you're in the pure play killing round right. of pure play retail. And you've got no advantage. You've lost all your advantage. So I think it gets down to what you sell and how you sell it. Is it differentiated? There's a market to sell some stuff, but again, you know, I, I, is that a winning strategy? Can you do it? Hey, listen, there's some great advantages selling into the U S market there. Uh, de minimis is eight hundred dollars. There's no taxes. Um, if you've got a differentiated product, there's no reason to wait. You right. get, you know, f- there's some great partners that will take it across the border for you. You know, from Purolator to eShop, you great partners. Take currency again. There's another thing you can take foreign currency. So from that perspective, you know, go to China. Does your product have value in China? The massive amounts of products being purchased. Is it different? Can you win? Um, can you? have a better advantage than just, you know, being a physical brick and mortar merchant, because that gives you an advantage. Without that, you better be careful uh, because you're, as I said, you you could be in this pure play killing zone where, you know, you're up against everything and all you've got to hang is, is your product. Unless you've got fantastic product that's differentiated that people want. We can think of many examples, right? Like a Canada Goose, a Roots, uh, Lululemon, very successful international companies, right? Yeah. Yeah. Great. The, uh, I had the luxury of, uh, being with a company for a couple of years, Big Al's, um, they were aquatics mm. industry and selling yep. um, everything to maintain your your my fish, fish my fish salt. tank. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I shopped and, at Big Al's. Yeah, know them well. They're they're a great organization, but they also had the franchise model, and the franchisees were really um, against e-commerce. Uh, they thought it would yep. take away business from them. So while we had uh, an e-commerce website for for the Canadian market, we quickly focused on the US because we had this great assortment and it was unique. And right. that business grew so fast in in the US market. And um, I don't think we ever looked back at the Canadian market because the US <laughs> was just it was fantastic. You, all of a sudden you got 300 million people at the time that were engaged in 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 your products versus okay, let's let's argue and fight with our franchise owners. Let's try to make this work in a population of you know, 30 million people at the time yep. and how many of them are actually one in, interested in, in aquatics. Yep. And then you go into this bigger market with a unique product. And that's now- the key. That's the key. You got, you added a unique differentiated market. And by the way, there is a model where franchisees can win 
And that, you know, when I, I was running, uh, helping run Pandora Jewelry, which is largely franchise driven, and it was the same debates. And, and at the end of the day, I, I was heading up marketing and uh, the franchises were like, drive traffic, drive me store traffic, take me, get, I said, look, I got a solution for you. I'll sell online, you fulfill, I'll drive traffic like you've never seen before. And Pandora was a wholesaler, right? Because Pandora made the product. It was a win-win. Culturally, it took a long time. I don't, I'm not even sure they're there yet, but that's a, like, don't fight them. Right. You know, come together. Like if you fight them, you're, gonna, you're both going to lose. Yeah, Listen, exactly. You, you know, you yeah, get in a fight you with your to. franchisees, you're going to lose. Um, even if you win, you're probably going to lose. But, you know, one of the things franchisees want, who doesn't? Store traffic. I'll get you store traffic. Do buy online, pick up and store. And when they're there, by the way, you guys are amazing at upsell and cross-sell. Have at it. Right. Yeah. And and uh, so that was a great discussion. And, and there's other models, you know, Canadian Tire, for example, as dealers and franchises, home hardware as well. Um, there's a win win there. There's absolutely a win win there. Um, it sometimes is a little more harder to figure out, but um, both can win or neither <laughs> if you're not careful. Well, I think if you can get the attribution right for the stores and the the online model, everyone can find a way to win. And it's just yep. you can't have one outweighing the other because if you want your your home office to succeed um, and grow your business, it it can't be doing this without a profitable model. And if you want more traffic, you got to allow some of those dollars to come back into the the home office so that we can take advantage of those dollars and and market from a from a brand yeah. perspective. And and you know they're asking the home office to drive traffic, right? That's part right. of your job at the home office. There's no cash registers in the home office. Your job is to create you know, create success for the dealers or the store managers or whoever it is uh, that you're serving. And, and, you know, there's ways to do that around clever accounting, but also just pragmatically, you know, many people like to return products to store. Look at what, look at what Amazon did with Kohl's, right? Yes. Uh, Kohl's traffic is up because they're taking Amazon returns. I don't know if that's a long-term good plan for them. Um, but in the short term, it just points us to the direction of, if you can take a return back, you're going to get a store traffic. You're going to get footsteps to the door. Those are hard, man. Those are hard. We forget, like in the before time, driving incremental store traffic. That's hard these days. Like th that's not a, that's not a bug. That's a feature. <laughs> it's hard yeah, to drive store traffic. I right? love that test and learn with Coles and them doing that. It's just how do they acquire that customer and how do they engage that customer going forward? So if you're yep. just picking up a parcel and saying, thank you, Mr. Customer, I'll take this return versus finding a way to acquire their email address at the same time that they've done that and now communicating with them. Like there's, you're right. How, how long can that last without a good acquisition strategy to go along with that return program? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but, the but, hope is, and again, we've talked about hope not being the best strategy that, you know, they pick up their order from in this case, Amazon. And they said, Oh geez, by while I'm here, I'm going to get some other stuff. Cause the hardest thing to do, and we learned this at Hudson's Bay, running the e-commerce, sorry, running the CRM business. We had 9 million records, right? Club, mm -hmm. Club Z. We could do great work incrementing the sale once they were in the store. Upsell, cross-sell. We were, you know, we could do a lot of programs that would get that basket bigger. We couldn't crack the code on getting them to the store, to right. incrementing store. Even back then, it was very hard to motivate someone to get to the store. Once they're in the store, that's where some magic can really happen. Yeah, great points. So, Michael, it's been a pleasure. I've missed over the mine. course of the uh, year or so not being able to engage and see you at conferences. And um, 
thank you so much for taking valuable time out of your evening uh, to spend with me and helping me with my my new venture on this podcast. I greatly appreciate the support for my whole 20 years in this career. You've been a big part of it and uh, you're, you're a true gentleman and a pleasure to be around. And I, I can't I can't express how much I appreciate you. Well, Chris, the pleasure is all mine and congratulations on your success. Uh, you know, you've, you've done so well and continue to do so well. So, you know, credit to credit to everything you've done and, and uh, happy to be have some kind of uh, contributing role to that and, and look forward to continuing our discussion uh, here. And, and uh, one time IRL, as the kids would say, in real life. All right, my friend. Thank you and have a great night. You've been listening to Delivering E-Commerce. It's our passion to have on leaders and suppliers in e-commerce from around the globe, setting you and your strategy up for the next level. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review, and we'll be back soon. Connect with Chris on LinkedIn at Chris Parsons on LinkedIn and Spotify at Delivering E-Commerce or on YouTube at Chris Parsons Delivering E-Commerce. Till next time, this is Delivering E-Commerce.